Hello and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am so delighted to say that this podcast is brought to you by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. Alighieri is a collection of jewellery inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. Each piece corresponds to one of the poet's 100 poems. As the pilgrim journeys through the realms of hell, purgatory and paradise, he encounters mythical creatures, scraggy landscapes and terror demons. Just like Dante's subjects, each piece of jewellery is battered, imperfect and a little bit melancholy. Every piece tells a story, embodying a modern heirloom that will travel with you on your own adventures. I am so excited to announce that from August the 1st to the 22nd, the gates of Alighieri Old Town will be open, bringing loved ones together to reunite, shop, dine and explore in an old Italian piazza placed in the centre of London. Close to Old Street Station, Fort Dingley Place will be transformed into an Italian utopia, transporting you to the holiday that 2020 has not yet allowed. The town will offer Alighieri's signature modern heirlooms, bespoke talismans, flash treasure trove discounts and one-of-a-kind souvenirs. In the heart of the piazza lies Casa Luna, the town's oldest restaurant where they serve antipasti, hand-rolled pasta and dolce. Visit alighieri.co.uk for more details and to book your shopping appointment in the Alighieri Old Town or to book dinner at Casa Luna. Meanwhile, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online orders to Refuge. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the highly renowned curator and art historian Bridget R. Cooks. Currently an associate professor in the Department of Art History and African-American Studies at the University of California, Irvine, Bridget R. Cooks is the acclaimed author of numerous publications, including the award-winning Exhibiting Blackness in African-Americans and the American Art Museum, A Historical Perspective of African-Americans, and she is currently in the process of completing her next book titled Norman Rockwell, The Civil Rights Paintings. A contributor to many major museum monographs, Bridget R. Cooks has authored essays on some of my favourite artists, including Augusta Savage, Lorraine O'Grady, Betty Saar, Romare Bearden, Lorna Simpson, among many others. She has curated exhibitions at the Museum of African Diaspora in San Francisco, the Sheldon Museum of Art in Nebraska, the California African American Museum in Los Angeles, and more, as well as having worked in museum education at the National Gallery of Art, 
Washington, D.C., and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. But the reason why we are speaking to Bridget R. Cooks today is because she is also an expert on the artist we will be discussing today, Alma Thomas, having authored an incredible essay for the Studio Museum in Harlem's major exhibition in 2016 of the late and great American educator turned artist known for her dazzling, colourful, abstracted paintings. Bridget R. Cooks, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing so well. And Katie, thanks so much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's such an honor to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've been so excited about this episode for so long because Alma Thomas really was one of the most pioneering artists in the 20th century, despite having started her professional career so late on in her 70s, which we'll get to in a moment. In a way, she's the kind of late 20th century's version of Matisse. She created these electric-like canvases with shards of shimmering colours that just transport you to these other worlds. Her abstracted language is so unique and feels so timeless in a way. She completely had her own style and outlook on the world through these kind of dizzying, dazzling colors. So I just love to start by asking you, how do you feel when you are in front of an Alma Thomas work? Well, the word that comes to mind is I feel unlimited. There's yes. a sense of joy. I think that she had when she painted that really translates after all of this time, that's very fresh and vibrant. There's a, a real sense of freedom, a sense that she could own everything she saw in terms of looking at her environment and then making it the subject for her painting. There's something really exhilarating about her choice of subject matter and a sense of vibrancy. Totally. I love the way in the essay you describe them as pulsating. They really do pulsate off the canvas. Yeah, they do. That's one of the things that I think really brings that sense of joy for me, that she was so in love with color and was able to yeah. attach a kind of emotion and feeling to it when she used it in her work. Totally. Do you think she had anything to do with synesthesia or anything? You know, I wouldn't put it past her, only because she was so interested in theories of different sorts, but also because she was... Yeah a math teacher. She was oh very interested in math. And I wow. think she may have had that gift. I should just add for our listeners, for those not aware, synesthesia is a neurological condition when someone experiences numbers or sounds through colour. But she was also very well read, naturally curious. I think that's a really wonderful window to open to look at her work again. Yeah, totally. So when was it that you first discovered her work and her life? So yeah, this is a good story. <laughs> so I was a teenager, an undergraduate at UC Irvine, and I was working at the Nash Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, DC. <gasps> I love that yeah, gallery. It, it, it's really wonderful. And when I was working there, it had only been open for a few years. And there were still a lot of skeptics why do we need a museum for women artists and, you know, all of that what? kind of new institutional <laughs> grumbling. And so I was on the Metro on my way to work and this elderly small black woman came and she got on the train and looked directly at me and then she just started walking <laughs> towards me and I was sitting and uh, she came and sat down next to me and we were smiling and she was lovely. And she said that she really liked my outfit. And at that time, I was wearing a lot of bright colors. I was essentially wearing <laughs> this two-piece matching outfit. 
Amazing. That had really a rainbow oh of gosh. flowers. It was very bright. <laughs> and she told me that she had a sister who really would have loved my outfit. And she started telling me about her sister. And then I asked who her sister was. And she says, oh, she was an artist. Her name was Alma Thomas. And I had just heard about or found out about Alma Thomas because of this really signature work that the National Museum of Women in the Arts owns called Iris Tulips, Jonquils, and Crocuses from 1969. And it's a, a large acrylic on canvas. Yeah. And it's this cascade of rainbow colors. And my outfit really did match it. (laughs) I love that. And, you know, she was really a fancy dresser and had a lot of pattern and color in the clothes that she wore. But I had met, unknowingly, one of Alma Thomas's little sisters, and her name was John Maurice Thomas. And I then said, oh, I just found out about your sister's work and I'm from California, but I'm working at this museum. And I invited her to come and give a talk about her sister to the interns that summer. And so I have this lovely picture of all of us together after her talk. And it was just one of those chance meetings being in the city where she and her sister lived. They actually shared a house together. Alma kept the downstairs. That was her territory. Her sister was upstairs and they, they bickered. The poor little sister shoved upstairs. (laughs) They bickered. It was, you know, one of those love hate relationships that you sometimes have with members in your family, but they depended on each other. They cared for each other. And John Maurice really respected her sister. I love that. That's incredible. Yes, That's know. such a lovely memory. Yeah. But, you know, is there one Alma Thomas work that really kind of stood out for you? You know, the work that stands out for me is a work that she made that's called Arboretum Presents White Dogwood. And I love this painting. It definitely looks like an Alma Thomas painting in some ways because of the kind of signature brush strokes. But it's kind of unlike a typical painting because it's not bright. It has a muted background of dark colors and... There's a sense of restraint in this painting that makes me almost hold my breath when I see it. Like it, it stills yeah. me. There's something about, I think, knowing how much she really loved color and how she's keeping it at bay in this work while she's appreciating the quiet white blossoms of the dogwoods. And we think about this as a spring flower coming from a woody tree. Yeah. It's a kind of fresh burst after winter and that there's a real stark contrast between the dark brown of the wood and then this small delicate flower and there's something about that tension I love looking at the work at the National Museum of Women in the Arts and then looking at this it shows her versatility and her respect for a wide range of botanical beauty and things that she was seeing in Washington DC it's quiet and still very strong yeah Totally. I think quiet is such a good way of describing it. I mean, for me, when I see a work like this, and and I'm as well just completely bewildered by these works in particular, because you can really see her or imagine her really holding that restraint back of putting colour in. But it's all about kind of tone and texture. And for this work, you're right, it's so quiet. There's such a muted to it. It's as though snow has just kind of fallen on it. And you know, that kind of silence with snow. It's like she creates these such incredible atmospheric 
environments with her paintings yeah. and you just get hooked in and you're like looking under them and it's like a kind of blanket yes the layering the white over the darkness it makes you want to engage it's as if you're watching time passing and so this has consistently been my favorite <laughs> yeah <laughs> And it's so interesting, you know, we should just be talking about a work that is so muted. But, you know, Alma Thomas once said, a world without colour would seem dead. Colour for me is life. What do you think colour really meant to Alma Thomas? Yeah, it's such an important question. And an answer that I think really captures what's so wonderful about her. I think that for Alma Thomas, that colour was really her lifeline. I think it yeah. vitalized her. We could think of it in terms of her filter. You know, that color yeah. was the way in which the world took shape. It was structure. So it's hard for me to think about these rectangular strokes as being separate from color. Yeah. It was so key that it was part of texture and stroke yeah. and shape. They were all one thing and color is what really activated those things. Totally. So I'd love to go back to Alma Thomas's upbringing. She was born in Georgia in 1891. Do we know much about her childhood? You know, who were her family? Well, obviously we know about her fantastic sister. <laughs> yes, I know. And there were four sisters, no brothers at all. She was the oldest of them. She was born really just less than a generation after Reconstruction. And that was the moment in which the U.S. was trying to form whole as a nation after the split between the North and South during the American Civil War. She was born at a really pivotal moment where I think there was a great sense of social loss for some people, but also a lot of hopefulness, opportunity, a time to rebuild and recreate. Her parents on both sides were educated. Her mother was a successful dress designer. Her father was oh, wow. a businessman and a landowner. And just seeing how accomplished they were in the respective fields that they were in, I could see how they could have really influenced her sense of confidence, yeah. her and her dress sense. Absolutely, her dress sense. <laughs> the most amazing pictures of Alma towards the end of her life. <laughs> at her exhibitions where she's matching her paintings and her dresses. She would love the shirt that you're wearing. I love the shirt that you're wearing too. <laughs> so yeah, her sense of creativity is something that was instigated in part by her parents from Columbus, Georgia. And Columbus was an economically prosperous place for blacks and whites. While that at first may seem like parity, it maintained unequal social systems, different economic registers of success for Blacks and whites. We think about there being Black jobs and white jobs and also good Black jobs and good white jobs. Those are not the same jobs, right? It was a segregated city, segregated schools, segregated churches. Wow. But her family in that system was of some means. She was not the first in her family to go to college. Her father and her grandparents had been to college. Her maternal grandfather was a, a veterinarian and a horse breeder. Wow. Oh my yeah. gosh. Such a wide range of family. I know. Um, so he was <laughs> someone who had standing in the community. He owned a plantation. He also built a school for Black wow. children's education. So these are really pioneering people. And the family really believed in education. So in that way, she was incredibly lucky. Yeah. 
I love that. But in 1907, the family moved to Logan Circle in Washington. I mean, why was this? So as I mentioned, it was a segregated city and they were inspired to move because of the race riots that happened in Atlanta, Georgia in 1906. They needed to think about the children's future and how they could protect the kids. In Columbus, Black children could not attend school after junior high. It was an opportunity to be more educated. There were already high schools there where Black kids could go to school. So it was going to be a, a step in the right direction for their future. Yeah. And then, so at this point, you know, was Alma Thomas thinking about art? Was she interested in art? So I think I would be surprised if she thought about becoming a professional artist at that time. And I say that because there weren't very many models. Maybe even though we think about some African-American artists from the 19th century, like Edmonia Lewis, I wouldn't expect that she knew about them. But it wasn't a profession that was really available for Black people. Having said that, Art was a part of her life already because of the really wonderful family that she had. When she got to Washington, D.C., she went to high school, and there uh, many different opportunities opened up for science of math, and she was able to have more access to different opportunities in different fields, and she really took to math. That's so interesting. You can kind of see that in her paintings in a way. They are quite mathematical. I don't know if it's just the, the shapes and the lines. And I agree. There's something, I think, additive. Like there's a rhythm yeah, yeah. to her, her work. Yes. There's such a rhythm. I, I wonder if she's interested in music as well. I know. I'm not sure about her specific interest in music, but I think looking at the names of some of her paintings, symphony is a word yeah. that she'll use. And it may have been in a poetic sense, like the song of the seasons. So she does yeah. talk about the rhythm of music, but I think she also believed in a kind of cyclical attention to rhythms of nature. Yeah. So she went to, well, she first went to Howard University in 1921 for home economics and then switched to art. Yes. I mean, Howard University, one of the kind of most prominent black arts university, yes. Elizabeth Catlett was an alumni, yes. her tutor was Lois Milo Jones. I mean, <laughs> this must have been such an incredible experience for her. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Howard is, we think even today as a mecca for black education and still today considered like the best black college. So I can see that she went to Howard in 1921 home economics, that's something that was allowed for Black women. You know, even if you had talents in other kinds of fields, that was more of an independent maverick decision. But for women to go into home economics or teaching, like, okay, those are things that even today, people think women aren't engineers. You hear that kind of thing. Well, of course, we know that that's yeah. not true. If it exists now, I'd say even more so 100 years ago. <laughs> I mean, it really is 100 yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah. But when she got to Howard, she was then introduced to these really wonderful teachers there. So James Herring and then Lois Mealy Jones, who was younger than Alma Thomas, was hired oh, yes. to teach design and watercolor. And wow. she became more interested in art as a possibility. She had a skill set that she could develop there. She had a, a wonderful appreciation for natural life and beauty. And she was focused on sculpture, portraiture. There's a portrait of her sister that she made and <gasps> in bust form. And But it was more 
of a 19th century continuum in terms of like the fine arts. And then later on in the 60s, she really departed from that and wanted to be this contemporary artist on the cutting edge of abstraction. Yeah, but I mean, am I right in thinking she was actually in the 20s experimenting with some sort of abstraction? In the early 1920s, we're thinking also about the emergence of the Harlem Renaissance. And yeah, she was not using abstraction. Abstraction yeah. comes in as a kind of stylized interpretation of African heritage. So thinking about African people, African symbols, and a sense of pattern. Now, these are being introduced to African-American people who have never been to Africa, who were not taught yeah. or encouraged to learn about African traditions. But in the Harlem Renaissance, wow. they're being encouraged to look at their heritage. And so they're trying to figure out what that looks like. Abstraction becomes a kind of style for recognizing the new Negro, the cosmopolitan African-American person who's coming out of this moment after World War I. Abstraction had a kind of political purpose in the visual arts of Black people during the Harlem Renaissance, and she was doing something else that was a little bit more free and that wasn't attached to imagined style of African art. So from 1924 to 1960, I mean, what's, I think, the most incredible thing to learn, I think, of Alma Thomas is the fact that she didn't become an artist Uh until her 70s. I mean, she was a teacher from 1924 to 1960. I mean, why do you think she dedicated most of her life to education and what was she teaching? I know. It's really interesting. So she was a junior high school teacher and just that on its own. Amazing. Gives us some insight into her, you know, junior high, it's awful being that age. (laughs) (laughs) I, you could not pay me millions of dollars to go back to the awkward ages of junior high. So what a lovely woman, right? To say, I have something to give these kids. Uh, There has to be a sense of empathy a recognition of their beauty and their potential. She was a math teacher. She had gotten her teaching credential right out of high school. And she'd also taught at a settlement house, which were these neighborhood centers that were created to help people of different cultural backgrounds and economic classes live together in a neighborhood. And then she teaches for 35 years She's teaching math, but she's also involved in art as an artist. But she founds this organization called the School Art League for her students. And they're meeting on Saturday mornings. Oh, my gosh. Wow. She's very keen. Very keen. (laughs) Extremely dedicated. And I think she was so dedicated for a few reasons. One, it was a steady income. And there's a lot to say about that. She had great models for teaching from Howard and also through her family. And her students had to have really appreciated her. So she did make art while she was teaching. She was part of this group called the Little Paris Group that her professor, Lois Maylou Jones, had formed in D.C. in her home. And it was a, a group of artists who drew live models and still lives and they could come together and talk about techniques but cultural issues oh my gosh I mean she just must have had so many different lives in a way because I mean age 69 70 she then goes 
and enrols in American University in DC. First of all, studies art history and then studies art. I mean, what led her to pursue this incredible career, you know, after retirement? I know. It's incredible. It gives me so much hope. Yeah. I mean, selfishly. (laughs) I feel like I have so many lives. (laughs) I know. Selfishly, it does give me so much hope that we can all be inspired to think that we can do it all. And I do think that you can do it all. I just don't think you can do it all at the same time, just for mental health. Yeah. I think that's not a great goal. (laughs) She's a, a great example of someone who paced herself. And I think who was quite focused while she was teaching the students, she helped to form a gallery that was very important called the Barnett Aiden Gallery in 1943. And they founded the first interracial art gallery in D.C., which means that they showed work by artists who were white and artists who were not. And people think about the art world as this place of freedom and love and peace. And it is absolutely not true. (laughs) The art world is extremely segregated and it always has been. But she was part of the establishment of that gallery and she was also an exhibiting artist there. So yeah, the different lives, I think, attest to the different interests and talents that she had. And that's why I go back to her parents, one being a businessman. And I mean, her mother was probably also a businesswoman in addition to being this dress designer. So she had a really solid foundation and it seems like her parents didn't limit her, but really said, here's what you can do. Here's what we do. And we're going to try to give you as many opportunities as possible to do that. So I think she retires in 1960 from being a a full-time teacher and decides that she's going to be a full-time artist. That's amazing. She enrolls at American University, which still exists in Washington, D.C. And I think of her as someone who also just wanted to be the best that she could be in whatever She was clearly so enthusiastic as well. (laughs) And had a lot of energy. I mean, to go back to school as a senior is incredible. I love it. She wanted so much information and she was active in the contemporary art scene. She didn't want to miss out. She wanted to be fully informed. And at that time, she was also making a move stylistically in her work from more representational work to abstraction. And I think she wanted to make sure that she was up on the contemporary theory, that she knew what other people who were involved in contemporary art at the time really knew. But I mean, the 1960s was also such a significant decade in the sense that there was so much going on politically as well. You know, it was the civil rights movement. I mean, in her early works, I mean, this must have been when she was studying these incredible works around 1963 to four that referenced the protests happening in America called March on Washington. I mean, was she involved politically much? You know, I think of her as someone who really separated art and politics. Yeah. And I want to say a little bit more about that because I think that all art is political. Yeah. I don't think that you can separate art from politics. And I don't think that we all have to agree on that, but that's what I think. I think for her, she thought about the civil rights movement as being important. Obviously, she was in D.C. during the March on Washington, but she used her art as a place of refuge. So it wasn't that she was oblivious to what was going on politically, and we're thinking in terms of social politics and governmental politics, but art for her had a different place in her life. So I think about 
her politics and the way that she combined her politics with her art practice was for her, her life was really about fulfilling her own potential. Yeah. And for Black people, this has always inherently meant fighting for civil rights because the social limitations on us have been tight and persistent. So she was not an activist in the way that we think about people marching in the streets or carrying signs or speaking out verbally quite loudly and publicly, but she broke barriers through her own talents. In America, this is what we call being a Negro first. Every accomplished Black person, and that's most of us, are Negro first, that we've done something to be the first person of our race to do that in education. I think certainly that was true for her um, because she was the first graduate with a fine arts degree from Howard in 1924. And then she was a Negro first in terms of being a leading abstractionist at the time. She followed through her personal and her professional interests. I think for her, that was exercising your civil rights in a way that looks differently from being in the street in a crowd of people. She did do a couple of sketches that show people marching during the March on Washington, and they are rare. They are impressionistic in the sense that you don't get facial features. They're all holding blank signs, and they're painted in such a way that it is figurative but also abstract. Yeah, The lines of color, the shapes, the, those things are quintessentially Alma Thomas, but I think they're also anomalies. And I also kind of see them as being awkward, that she was trying to figure out how can I bring the sociopolitical world into my work? And she tried to do it, but it just wasn't the right fit for her. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, already you can see that style coming through you have the kind of rainbow colors but also I think what I can really see from it is also this kind of noise in a, yeah. in a strange way there's some kind of sound to it I know that, that, that might sound bizarre but yeah. you can really feel this the crowd's energy and I think that's what her work then goes on to produce is just this forthright energy this sound this buzz this electric like feeling I think when you witness her work but I mean she you know, in 1966, had her first solo exhibition already. I mean, she was flying high. I mean, cl clearly very, very, very determined. Yeah. And then in the 60s, developed her Alma Stripe, the Earth paintings. I mean, could you tell us about these? Yeah, you know, this is so interesting. I like everything that you're saying about these March on Washington works, because I think we can look at these placards, you know, that these figures are holding and see them almost as enlarged white stripes. Yeah. And in one of them, where the placards are more vertical than horizontal, you can get a sense of the color peeking through. When she moves on, thinking about these earth paintings, I mean, what's wonderful about these is it shows how she, again, is such a maverick. It's like, here's the woman who went to college as a home ec major and left as the first person to have an arts degree. You know, Amazing. it's like, yeah. you can tell me what's acceptable, but I'm going to go ahead and do what I want to do. Yeah. And so this is when she starts to really focus in on her two primary topics. So one being Earth in two different yeah. ways. One is Earth as a planet and thinking about seeing the Earth from far away 
having oh, yes. a vision that's about space, right? That makes people very small and insignificant and puts us into orbit, right? In relationship to yeah. other places. And that's the macro vision. The micro vision is let's look at the very, very small flowers. <laughs> We're going to look from far away. We're going to look away from earth, right? That there's a kind of earthly vision looking out, but then there's this small vision that's very close that you have to be on earth to see the beauty of earth. And so it's quite surprising, even if you think, okay, in a kind of stereotype gendered way, women should be painting flowers because women are the falsity of us is that we're naturally delicate and sweet smelling and all of those things, (laughs) right? It's like, mm, no. But her flowers are not representational flowers. They are geometric forms, hard lines. They're constructions. They're not at this time in the 1960s going forward. They are not about a kind of delicacy. It is about blocks and working outside of the expectations of what people would refer to as women's work or the delicate hand. She's totally not interested in that. I don't even know if she knows what that is. (laughs) She's like, I am who I am and this is my hand. And so in the 60s, she starts working with elastic banding it around the canvas to get these straight lines. She has arthritis at this time as well. So I think it has a really practical function. It's another important aspect of appreciating her work, you know, because as you get older, we're of course talking about your body getting older, your mind getting older, not letting that stop her from completing the vision. So yes, I have arthritis and arthritis is painful. And it can deform your limbs. How does she move forward? She just creates a workaround. I'll get elastic. I'll do something that helps to steady the hand. She makes it a positive. You know, she makes it part of her style. And it becomes, again, part of that filter that she can use to help us see the world close up and as a world from a distance as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I'm just looking at this work now called Wind, Sunshine and Flowers. And I love how, well, am I right in thinking that that was also the hypothetical name of her autobiography? (laughs) I know. Um, Yeah, I think that sense of nature and being in nature, it was really important to her that there's a sense of translating the experiential. What does it mean to be in the sun? What does it mean to be with the flowers, to observe the flowers? What does it feel like? you know, to be in the elements. And I I think that feeling is what she was successfully able to translate. So that when you ask me, how do I feel in front of a painting of hers? I feel unlimited. I feel joy. I think I may feel how she felt. Yeah. Because she said this, it's not about showing every leaf and every pistol and stamen. It's about bringing that feeling of being in the arboretum when we're talking about her flower paintings. It's about bringing that onto the canvas, right? That doesn't necessarily look, quote unquote, like a flower. Yeah, totally. And even just the bits in the... It's strange, you know, something like wind, sunshine, flowers, when you actually look at it properly, you can almost see these kind of arcs in it, which can even evoke 
the wind. I mean, I'm probably projecting my own ideas onto it. But you really get this sense that the world could be, in a way, pixelated into these different colours that make up yeah. our vision. And I love, you know, you talk about earlier the sort of hard edge of them. They they seem quite slowly applied. There's a real <laughs> yeah. kind of walkingness to it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just like you're just going for a walk with Alma Thomas and you're just experiencing what she is. And they're very, I guess, like meditative as well. You could just kind of look at them for hours and you could literally imagine anything in them because they are abstract. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it is curious, these arches that you're paying attention to in this painting, they could be any number of things. And I think she would yeah, want us totally. to experience them with a sense of wonder, right? Because they could be clouds. They could be movement mm. of people. They could be pathways in a garden. She's making a visual pathway so that there's something for everyone. Yeah. But I mean, you also, you know, so much is going on at this time in the world. You know, 1969 is the first landing on the moon. Mm -hmm. And she's really kind of, you know, entranced by the fact that we have these visions. It's television that can bring these things to life. I mean, there's this great artist statement of hers, which says, today, not only can our great scientists send astronauts to and from the moon to photograph its surface and bring back samples of rocks and other materials but through the medium of color television all can actually see and experience the thrill of these adventures these phenomena set my creativity in motion i mean you could just kind of imagine her in front of the television being like oh my gosh this is the future and these works like blast off or launchpad they're such a energetic motion to them. Yeah, there's so much to say about this. So, you know, NASA begins launching vessels into space to explore the moon in the mid-1960s. And it is a real revelation to everyone. Yeah. I think it's exciting for many people, namely her. And it's also really frustrating because there are so many really horrible things happening on Earth. So that people are, particularly for Black people, and also thinking about the Vietnam War. So we yeah. think about a time of great contradiction, not unlike yeah. the time that we're in right now. We're having this conversation yeah. <laughs> during the coronavirus pandemic, and it's a time of great sorrow and also a time of great innovation and possibility. And I think about her trying to parse out those two things. We think about the assassination of, of great leaders at the time, Malcolm yeah. X, the Kennedys, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, yeah. and many other civil rights leaders. And so I think about this work as escapist for her. I think it could be a part of self-care to think yeah. about optimism in the future, to think about technology what's possible, how we can send a man to the moon, but we can't keep assassinations of great leaders from happening on earth. So I think those things are happening at the same time. There is a great deal of joy and possibility for her when she's thinking about color television <laughs> and going to the moon. And, you know, it's really it, quite exhilarating. And in yeah. the works that you're mentioning, like Launchpad, I mean, you get that, again, that sense of how adapt she is at translating her feeling right into painting through color the way that she's using a kind of spectrum of color very unevenly right so that the white of the paint and the lightness of the canvas become the fire of the blast off of the space shuttle as it goes into space yeah it's wonderful and it's like how can she use the same palette for irises and jonquils and crocuses. So it's one of the things that I really admire consistently and, and grow a deeper and deeper appreciation for when I look at her work. But yeah, and I do think 
because we're in such a time right now of great confusion yeah. in the world, I, I really do appreciate how this is her way of dealing with the ups and downs of every day and the contradictions of progress. Are we getting better as a society globally or are we getting worse? And how do you reconcile a feeling of wanting to really enjoy the world around you, but also feeling like there are a lot of forces against you? To be making this work at the same time is just really incredible. It is a kind of duality and a sense of ownership again that she can comment on both of these things. And there's something very bold about her as an artist and as a woman to really say that I can do both of these things. I can express them both. I can feel them both. I can have an opinion about both of them and make it part of my art. Totally. I mean, bearing in mind, she's in her 80s at this point as well. <laughs> so the perspective of also being someone of that age, I think is incredible. I think that's such a beautiful way to express it and I think you're so right and I think that's why I think she feels so relevant today and she was someone who really kind of saw beyond her time and these works are sort of timeless in a way. I totally agree they really are there is something very timeless about her and I think part of it is about the fact that I, I see her as a visionary yeah I think she surprised a lot of people black and white when she was a senior making this work and just saying, so this is what people are doing now. This is what the Washington Color School is interested in. Color theory, optical illusion. Yeah, I can do that. But I mean, she starts to really gain recognition at this point. I mean, 1972, she has the Whitney retrospective. I, I mean, bearing in mind, this is 12 years after she graduates. Yeah. No, 12, 12 years after she enrolled. Right, and she's <laughs> retired, right? It's 12 years after yeah. she retires from being a teacher. Age 81, amazing. It's, it's unheard of. And what's also unheard of is that she's the first Black woman to have a solo show at the Whitney. So it's another... Negro first, and that a woman in her 80s is making the cutting edge art that is being recognized by mainstream art museums. I really do wish that I had an opportunity to meet Alma or at least to see her in person because I would love to just see the way that she physically took up space just walking into her opening. Yes. And just being like, <laughs> with her I'm matching here. dress, yeah, and her paintings. I'm here, I'm Alma <laughs> Thomas. This is it. I'm doing this. Yeah. Get out of my way. <laughs> I just love that. I love it. That's just so inspiring for someone at any age, but for someone in their 80s, right, to just take up space in that way. Her paintings also physically took up space. I mean, if I look at, I show you a picture, I'll I'll link this in the show notes, but you know, she's really taking up space. I mean, her paintings are essentially as tall as her. I think she probably must be quite short. Who is moving canvases? She is is showing, (laughs) she is showing off here and saying, this is mine and I'm going to claim this and own this space. I mean, it's on a par with the abstract expressionists completely. Right. And she was very influenced by them. I think she also saw herself as the kind of next step in abstract expressionist work, as people of the Washington Color School were. And she associated with them, but she wasn't interested in doing exactly what they did. And she came up with something very unique and identifiable for her. And she wanted to be a great painter. And I think For her, that meant having large canvases, taking up space. I mean, it means different things. But in this sense, I was talking about her physically taking up space with her energy. Yeah. But also (laughs) the canvases being so large, like 50 by 60 inches. When you put something that big in a room, it transforms (laughs) the space, right? It's not just the painting hanging on the wall. The room 
is transformed because of that object in the room, right? And that's part of her power. Yeah. And then, I mean, in the 70s, she doesn't slow down after the Whitney's retrospective. I mean, she starts experimenting with these kind of mosaic techniques. And then the painting that you referenced earlier, I mean, my favorite one has to be Cherry Blossom Symphony, yeah. because I think, and Pond Spring Awakening. I mean, these are just some of the most beautiful works yeah. I've ever witnessed in my life. I totally agree. We've talked about the names of some of the paintings after Flowers. But then there's this painting, Mars Dust, that the Whitney owns from 1972, right? The year that she had her so exhibition there. They're just divine. I mean, Mars Dust is hard to look at. It's pulsating and thinking about Mars as being the red planet. And she's referring to a dust storm that the NASA astronauts saw from their spacecraft. And so this is something that she would have seen documentation of, but wanted to translate it through her own lens so that we're getting the redness of the planet, but then we're getting something being hidden, the dust, a kind of chaos and energy, even sound. But it's this really kind of peaceful raindrops as well. Yes. You know, and we're so led by her titles. I mean, what if she named it uh, tulips? But there is something very hot, I think, about this red in the way that it pulsates in Mars dust. And then the Cherry Blossom Symphony, yes, absolutely amazing, incredible. It's got that sense of muting. And then because symphony is in the title, we do think of music. Yeah, I mean, she was just so innovative in the sense that she had, what, this kind of 18-year career. (laughs) You know, she lived until she was 88. And people say about her... Even at 84, she maintained a youthful interest in the new. And I think every single aspect of her, whether it's politics, I mean, again, coming back to it, they're all so inherently political. It's nature, it's music, it's sound, it's all these different aspects she's really just conjuring all into one. And also, if we think about kind of fashions of the 70s as well, it's quite sort of (laughs) 70s-like as well. (laughs) I know, which is very much in vogue right now. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) She was very outspoken. And the few quotes that are repeated from from her give you a strong sense of self. So here's a quotation from her. She says, we artists are put on God's good earth to create. Some of us may be black, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is for us to create, to give form to what we have inside of us. We can't accept any barriers, any limitations of any kind on what we create or how we do it. It's like right on. Yes, yes, yes. More of that, yes. I mean, how do you think Alma as a person and her work resonated with viewers in the 70s and how do you think they resonate with us now? Well, I am encouraged by the fact that she had this exhibition at the Whitney because it allowed her to really reach an international audience. I think people must have been very surprised by what she was doing and maybe they tried to see it as a quaint or cute because of her age. But the reviews really take her work quite seriously and see her as having a definite, unique style. One thing I do want to say, the Whitney at the time, this is another comparison that makes sense to where we are now in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement and its impact on museums. So the Whitney had curated an exhibition called Paintings of the 1930s, and none of the artists in the exhibition were Black. 
So, you know, yeah, right. So that's not possible. It's not possible to do a good show of paintings of the 1930s and exclude Black artists. And so there was a great deal of pushback by a number of Black artists and activists. And I believe that Black artists had to be both, especially in the late 60s and early 1970s. And through an organization called the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, they protested the exhibition. They protested another exhibition called Harlem on My Mind in 1969 at the Met. And they had organized demands of how the museums needed to change. Part of all of that energy that Black artists were spending outside of their studio trying to make museums be what they should be was a series of exhibitions at the Whitney that were solo exhibitions of Black artists. And so Alma Thomas was one. So that's part of the context for understanding how her work was seen at the time. It was a relief for many people who had been fighting for Black visibility to see her work there. For other people, it was an imposition of social politics, the outside world coming into the art world. And now we have to have these exhibitions of Black artists. So I think that there was some resentment. I think it was a partially hostile experience. Wow. And I think looking at the quality of her work, she met all the expectations for what contemporary artists should be doing. She was on trend in terms of abstraction, but she was individual. She wasn't limited. She was breaking outside of gender norms by being an artist, a professional artist, and also through her subject matter. And turning the idea of representing flowers on its head, all of that really had to have made people take pause. Another element of this is there's been an ongoing discussion for generations of what is Black art, right? And that question does not have an answer. Alma Thomas's response to that, essentially, I am a Black woman. I am not limited to make art about any particular subject matter that you think I should be doing because I am Black, right? I'm a Black woman. This is what I do. To me, that's part of that maverick sensibility, that the necessary attitude to break out of barriers. But the rest of the world could struggle with what Black art was. I don't think she was struggling at all. Yeah. Yeah. She was just doing what she wanted to do. And that's what's made her so relevant. I mean, that's the spirit that we all are inspired by. Yeah. I think her work translates universally in every single way. And I think yeah. that's why it appeals to us so much now and, and to anyone living around the world. You know, right. it, it, it's how we see the outside world in so many different ways and how we can apply it to that. And I actually was introduced to her work in about 2015 when Michelle Obama added her yes. work to the White yes. House collection. <laughs> I mean, what did this mean for Alma's legacy? Because I mean, this was just global. Yeah, this was a really incredible moment. I mean, the photographs of her work at the end of the table, it's a work called Resurrection from 1968. It's an unusual title for her. It's one of her paintings where the composition is concentric circles made from these kind of staccato brushstrokes and, you know, a slightly modified rainbow palette. And it is bright and it radiates. It's the brightest thing in this dining room at the White House. She's the first Black woman artist to become part of the White House permanent collection. So the work was was purchased 
It wasn't borrowed from an institution. It belongs in the White House collection. There's something about this work that is just uplifting. And I think it's the the bright yellow in particular, but also this sunlight, natural light radiating from the sun. It's almost like a blessing from her in this room, looking onto the people that are at the table. And it's a joyous work. I, I think one of the wonderful things about this moment when the work was acquired is that there was a recognition from that particular White House administration and the Obamas as a couple themselves to hire the right people, to advise them, to use their own sense of taste and style, to try to show a shift in the White House in so many different ways and appreciating and recognizing artists past and present. Michelle Obama did it through fashion. Art was not left out. And it's so wonderful to see that Alma Thomas was a part of that shift. Yeah. And what does her work and her as a person mean to you? I think of Alma Thomas as just being a badass, you know, and I think there's something wonderful about having models who didn't really care about what other people thought. And as, you know, people who have professional careers, sometimes you can feel like you are not so confident with your new ideas or breakthrough traditions. And, you know, I think in our weakest moments, maybe we think that way. And then you remember, oh, yeah, I actually don't need to worry about that. Think about Alma Thomas, you know, she was not concerned about that. She knew that she was good at math. She knew that she was good at art. (laughs) She knew that she was a great student. And she did it in multiple points in her life. She knew that she inspired her students. She knew that she could help build institutions. And she just went ahead with it. She didn't ask permission to do these things. And for me, it's just invaluable to have a model. And she is one of them who just said, you know who you are, you know what you're capable of doing. So just do it. Amazing. Bridget Alcooks, thank you so much for this incredibly insightful, amazing, amazing conversation on Alma Thomas. I can't thank you enough. And I know you mentioned it earlier just a few moments ago, but if she were around now, or perhaps you were transported back to her opening night in the Whitney in 1972, what would you say to her? I would mostly listen. But the only thing I can imagine saying to her is thank you. And same to you, Katie. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And it's such a a blessing to me to be able to recognize her in this way through this conversation. So I really appreciate you finding me and inviting me to be in conversation with you about the great (laughs) Alma Thomas. Well, thank you so much, Alma, wherever you are, and Bridget. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 37th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Bridget R. Cooks on Alma Thomas. I am so blown away by Bridget's incredible words and her and can't wait to see an Alma Thomas work in the flesh soon. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Abba Miller. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me. Katie Hessel. 